We know that uh, as we read our Bibles, as we study God's word, he reveals to us more about himself. And uh, one of our favorite books to read is the Gospels. We know that we have four of them to choose from, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, when we read these books, it, in a very direct sense, helps us to understand about Jesus' life and his teachings. And these are vital for us to understand. But I wanted to ask you the question, why are there four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and teaching? Do you ever wonder about that? Why four? Well, the reason that we have four different accounts of Jesus' life is that God uses four different men to write four different gospels to four different audiences. That's why we have four versions of the gospel. Now, we know in most respects, they're, they're very much the same. They differ in certain ways. Each account of Jesus' life and teachings has a different emphasis. That's why we have four. A different approach suitable for the particular audience that they were writing to. So what we're going to do today is start a series of four sermons, and we're going to go through each particular gospel and hopefully look at it in a slightly different way and maybe get a better appreciation of why that particular gospel says that and it includes that and it's written in that way. So let's begin. Mark. Even though in the Bible it's listed as Matthew first, Mark is considered to be the first gospel written. And it was written probably in the early 60s AD. And you're all familiar with that ADBC uh, designation. Uh, AD stands for Anno Domini, which means in the year of the Lord. So supposedly 65 or so AD means 65 years approximately after Jesus was born, whereas BC stands for before Christ. And that separation has existed in our being able to tell what year it is that started in around 500 AD. Uh, there was a particular individual who came up with that idea of designating what year it is. So we use that. This year is 2021. But other cultures reckon years differently. The Jewish people, of course, and, and others have different, the Chinese certainly have different ways of marking years. But as far as our culture is concerned, since we followed the Roman calendar, uh, over the years, we designate the time of Mark writing his gospel in the early 60s AD. So approximately 30 years after Jesus ascended back up into heaven. Mark, the author of this particular gospel, was a close associate of the apostle Peter, from whom he received the tradition of the things said and done by the Lord. So most likely, Mark, as he was writing his gospel, he got most of his information uh, from Peter, the Apostle Peter. And Mark accurately preserved this material. Now, Mark himself was not an apostle, but he hung out with Peter, who was an apostle. Uh, Mark is mentioned in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. In Acts 12, verse 12, <clears throat> It says here, when this had dawned on him, on Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. 
So it turns out that Mark, the author of this first gospel that we're dis discussing, he was also known as John Mark, he's first mentioned in the Bible in connection with his mother, who happened to have a house in Jerusalem that served as a meeting place for believers. So they actually held church services at Mark's mother's house in Jerusalem. In uh, verse 25 of the same chapter, it mentions Mark or John Mark again, as he was known. It says, when Barnabas and Saul, this is Acts 12, verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned home from Jerusalem, this time taking with them John, also called Mark. So the author of this first gospel we're discussing, the gospel of Mark, not only had a mother who had a home where church services were held regularly in Jerusalem, but when Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch from Jerusalem, Mark accompanied them and eventually traveled extensively with them, even as far as Rome. And most scholars agree that Mark was in Rome when this gospel was written. And his audience was made up of Gentile Christians in Rome. So get the idea, the first gospel we're discussing, written by Mark, and who is his audience? Gentile Christians in Rome. So Roman people, basically. Let me tell you a little bit about the ancient Romans and get an idea of why Mark wrote the way he did. The ancient Romans were a people who admired leadership and they admired power and action. Those were some of the trademarks of the Roman culture, and they were a nation, an empire, that conquered the world at that time. So Mark's gospel is action-packed. Of all the gospels, of all four gospels, there is the most action on the part of Jesus, especially, in the gospel of Mark. So much so, that Mark, in his gospel, uses the word and, A-N-D, 1,375 times because he's continually tying together the endless actions of Jesus. He'll say, well, Jesus did this and, then he went and he did that, and so it's action-packed because he's writing to a, a culture that appreciates action getting things done. Mark's gospel is brief and to the point. There's only 16 chapters in the gospel of Mark compared to Matthew that had 28, Luke 24 chapters, John 21. Mark only has 16 chapters because he's brief and to the point, the way the Roman culture would expect it to be. He starts the gospel with this is the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the way Mark starts his gospel. And that says it all. It's the gospel, it's the good news about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. So he tells you in advance, at the very beginning, what it's all about. So like modern successful businessmen and women, the Romans wanted a God who could powerfully meet their needs. And that's the kind of God that Mark talks about when he describes Jesus in his gospel. So Mark, and we'll get into some of the scriptures in just a minute, Mark portrays Jesus as a healer, talks a lot about his healing, 
a miracle worker, and a teacher who was misunderstood by those closest to him, the apostles primarily. Since Mark is writing to a Gentile audience who are totally unfamiliar with the Old Testament, he doesn't take time to trace Jesus' family tree. You know, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke start off by talking about who Jesus descended from. In one case, going all the way back to Adam, but in another case, tracing the Jewish lineage. So Mark knows that he's talking to Gentile people who don't really care about Jesus and who he descended from, uh, his family tree. It would have been meaningless to the Romans. So that's why when you look at the Gospel of Mark, he starts off with, bang, this is the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No history of who he descended from. It didn't need to, to be written. Now notice in uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 1, because Mark is speaking to a Gentile Roman audience, whenever he talks about Jewish customs, he has to take time to explain them. In Mark 7, beginning at verse 1, he says this, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Now, in my Bible, as in most of yours, in parentheses, it says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So you see, Mark had to take time <laughs> to explain what Jewish customs were all about, because his audience, the people in Rome, Gentile Christians, didn't know about that. Notice also in uh, verse 34, when he talks about Aramaic words, perhaps words that Jesus himself spoke or, or that the apostles spoke at that time, because the main language that Jesus would have spoken during his earthly ministry was Aramaic, not necessarily Hebrew. But notice in Mark 7, verse 34, Mark has to take time to explain what certain me words mean. This is when Jesus was healing someone. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh, said to him, Ephatha, Ephatha, which means be opened. So notice if he was writing to a Jewish audience, he wouldn't have had to explain what that Aramaic word means. But to those in Rome, he certainly did have to do that. So, Mark's message is about Jesus, it's about his authority, it's about power, and so on. So Mark gives a series of stories in his gospel to demonstrate Jesus' authority as the Son of God, because that was an important concept for Romans to see and to appreciate and to understand. Let's turn to Mark 1, beginning in verse 2. So to explain Jesus' authority as the Son of God and as the Anointed One, the Christ, he explains how Jesus is announced to the world 
by a Jewish prophet who was John the Baptist. So it quotes a scripture here in Mark 1, verses 2 and 3, showing that Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. And he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3 here. We read on in, in verse 4, it says, And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it talks about how all the people came to John to be baptized. Then it mentions that Jesus was baptized by John. Verse 9, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So at baptism, God the Father proclaims Jesus' authority as the son of God. So Mark wanted to be very sure that he pointed this out. He's pointing out to his Roman audience, who puts a lot of importance on authority and credibility, that this man, Jesus Christ, at the time of his uh, baptism, by the very voice of God from heaven, gave authority to him and pointed out to him who he was, that he was the very son of God. And then Mark goes on to mention, after Jesus' baptism, it says in verse 12 of Mark 1, At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. So right after showing his authority from God himself, Jesus goes to the wilderness to do battle with the devil and wild animals, and he returns victorious. <laughs> So notice Mark puts a lot of importance on Jesus' authority, his power, his strength. Here is a leader, for all intents and purposes, like a Roman general almost. And his audience would admire this. They would take note of this, okay, that this is not just an ordinary man. He has credentials from heaven itself. So it's all about authority. Mark shows and stresses that Jesus has authority as a leader. Notice here in Mark 1, verse 16. It's talking about the time when Jesus calls the apostles, the 12. He begins calling them to ministry. It says in Mark 1, verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother, Andrew, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. So Jesus has authority as a leader. He calls apostles and they immediately follow him without asking questions. Mark also shows Jesus' authority as a teacher. Same chapter, verse 21. They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So the people notice right away that when he teaches, he teaches with authority. 
that was very important to Roman people. They took note of that. They were impressed by that. It also mentions that Jesus had authority, not just as a leader, not just as a teacher, but he had authority over things such as demons and even sickness in verse 23. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. So here is this Jesus who has power over the spirit world. Verse 27, the people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So notice the approach that Mark takes in his gospel. And perhaps next time you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll appreciate this. He doesn't start out his Gospel the way Matthew did, or the way Luke did, and certainly not the way John did, because John had a completely different approach. But what Mark is trying to do here is establish Jesus, his authority, his credibility, his power, his leadership, because of the audience that he was speaking to, the Romans. Christian believers in Rome. And that whole culture was about such things as power and armies and invading other countries and who was the strongest and who was the greatest leader. Mark takes a lot of time to emphasize this because he knew that this would impress the people of Rome. Now, Mark's writing wasn't just to impress people, it was to bring people to salvation. It was, it was to share the good news about Jesus and who he was and what he did and his death on the cross and what that meant, but to establish credibility, to set the groundwork for these people to respond to the gospel. This is the particular approach that Mark chose, and now we know why why he stresses this and why especially the first chapter of Mark starts out the way that it, it did. Now Mark also stresses that even after all of this virtually no one recognizes Jesus for who he is. Mark talks about in chapter 3 verse 21 how even Jesus family members thought that he was out of his mind. They, you know, they didn't believe that he was the son of God, his, his uh, siblings. So he didn't get respect from his family. Also in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, in his own hometown where he grew up, the people of his hometown were offended by the way he was acting. 
Notice, I'll turn there to Mark 6, verse 1. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And certainly the Jewish leaders did not accept Jesus for being the Son of God. In Mark 3, verse 22, the crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. But uh, they went ahead and uh, claimed that Jesus had uh, a demon. It said in verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus didn't get any respect <laughs> from the people of his time, not from his, his own family, not from the people of his hometown, not from the Jewish leaders, and even his disciples at the time did not really give him the respect that he deserved. In chapter 8, verse 14, uh, when Jesus uh, was teaching, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets, uh, basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said, then, do you still not understand? So they weren't getting the point. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't believe. But, you know, halfway through the Gospel of Mark, things begin to change. At least the disciples begin to get an inkling of who Jesus is. It involves the story of a blind man who was healed by Jesus here in chapter 8 and verse 22. <clears throat> Jesus heals this uh, blind man in Bethsaida. Some of the people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So with the healing of this, this blind man, the, the unique thing about the story is that the man receives his sight back gradually, just as some start to see Jesus' identity gradually. The disciples gradually start to understand who Jesus is, that he truly is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Anointed One. And this is when Jesus kind of confronts 
the disciples and Peter especially. In verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went out to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And then Peter finally says, well, you're the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So it was a learning process. Jesus was a leader who was not accepted immediately. It took time. It took experience. The apostles had to see before that they would believe. And certainly in another gospel, Jesus says to Peter, it was the Father who revealed this to you. Just as he's revealed it to us. We know who Jesus is because it's been revealed to us by the Father that Jesus truly is the Son of God. But Mark in his gospel as he's you know, teaching the, the people of Rome, the believers in Rome, as he's trying to encourage them. A lot of his gospel message has to do with suffering and death. And on three separate occasions, Mark records how Jesus predicted his death. And uh, again, the apostles didn't really get it. They didn't think that a Messiah, if he truly was the Messiah, that a Messiah was going to die. Because they felt from Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah was coming to rescue them. That he was going to be a great leader who was going to defeat the Romans. He was going to set Israel free from Roman domination. And once again, set up Israel as the greatest nation on the face of the earth. But unfortunately, that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came not to rescue Israel physically from Roman domination. He came to rescue Israel and all mankind from their sins. And in order to do that, he was going to have to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the whole human race. And that's exactly what he did. Mark's gospel, this short gospel of 16 chapters, Mark's gospel deals more with Jesus' passion and death than any of the other three gospels. In fact, six of the 16 chapters deal with the last week of Jesus' life. So Mark stresses the death of Jesus Christ. He stresses the suffering of Jesus Christ. The last, uh, the last six chapters of Mark deal with the Passover, the Last Supper, the betrayal, the arrest, the denial, the trial, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. So why did Mark spend so much time talking about the suffering of Jesus? <clears throat> well, he did that to encourage the believers in Rome who were being persecuted for their faith. Rome was not a good place to be as a Christian in the first century. There was a tremendous amount of persecution going on. In fact, it was right at the time of Mark writing this gospel, around the early 60s AD, that two of the great church leaders, Peter and Paul, were both martyred in Rome by the Roman authorities. As I think you all know, Paul was beheaded, Peter was crucified upside down, Nero was the emperor at the time, and he was a very sick, twisted individual. 
Uh, in fact, when you read history about the first century in Rome, uh, there was a great fire in Rome at the time. A great deal of the city burned down, and it was kind of discovered later that Nero, the emperor, ordered the fires to be started because he wanted to do a lot of urban renewal, and he wanted to build a palace and other buildings to his own honor. So he went and had his people set fires to destroy a great deal of the city at that time. And then he turned around and blamed the fire on Christians. And many of the people believed that it was the Christians who set the fires. And because of that, persecution increased even more. And thousands upon thousands of Christians were martyred in Rome. So it was not a good place to be. And he's speaking to a church here. He's speaking to believers in the city of Rome who are already suffering persecution. So he dwells a lot on the suffering and the death and the persecution on Jesus Christ during his ministry. Notice in uh, Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. He quotes here what Jesus said. Mark 8, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if you want to be a, a follower of me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus explains that being a disciple of his is going to involve suffering. It's going to involve persecution. Expect it. It's going to happen. He says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. He says in verse 35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. So Mark specifically points out what Jesus says here, that persecution is the price that Christians must pay for following Jesus. And when it happens to you, and it's going to happen to all of us at one time or another, during our Christian life, don't get all blown out of proportion. Don't get all angry. Don't get all confused. Jesus said, anticipate it. It's going to happen. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And Mark is trying to get this point across to the believers in Rome who are suffering great persecution. And the persecution on the church at Rome was going to last another couple of centuries. In fact, it wasn't going to be until the year 325 when Christianity ultimately becomes the religion of the Roman Empire. The persecution was going to continue through, you know, three centuries, perhaps. So this is why Mark stresses this. The suffering and death of Jesus, he takes six chapters of his 16-chapter gospel to talk about that to say, this is what Jesus was willing to go to, through for you. But then he also offers Jesus' admonition to us that if we're going to be his follower, we're going to be persecuted.
Now Mark, at the end of his gospel, tries to help his audience understand how they should respond. And he gives a a particular example as Jesus died on the cross, Mark 15 and verse 37. And notice how he points this out. I don't think any of the other gospel writers mentions this. Mark uh, 15, verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus on the cross breathed his last. And when he died, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And notice verse 39, speaking to a Roman audience. And when the centurion, and you know what a centurion is, a Roman military officer who happened to be standing there at the cross when Jesus died. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So it's interesting that Mark uses this example of not just a man, a Roman man, and not just a Roman man, but a Roman centurion who was a military officer of high regard, who was very well respected in that society. And he uses an example of this man who responded to Jesus, who had faith, who made a declaration of his faith that surely this man was the son of God. So of all the examples Mark could list there toward the end of his gospel of someone responding to Jesus' death on the cross. It happened to be a man that would impress the Romans, a centurion. Someone who was a military officer who had important social status and held a powerful position in society. And yes, this was the man who responded to the death of Jesus Christ by declaring his faith and his belief. And by doing this, Mark was saying, okay, my audience here of Roman believers, look to this man as an example. This is how you respond to this gospel. You believe, you have faith. You say, surely this man was the son of God. So that was Mark's goal. He gives an example to his Roman audience of the proper way to respond to his gospel. So the Gospel of Mark is unique. Like I said, it's the shortest. It's the one that dwells most on the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. It talks a lot about Jesus' power, authority, uh, strength, if you will, his dominion over demons, even sickness, his power to heal, his power to make well. And all of this had a a reason. It, It was because of the audience that he was writing to. He knew where these people were mentally. He knew about their society. He knew the things that were held in high regard in that society. And these are the aspects of Jesus' life that he focused on. So we know that uh, there continued to be Christians in Rome uh, for centuries, even to this day today. So it had a lot to do with Mark and his gospel and the approach that God inspired him to use and it certainly was effective. So as we study through the gospels, you know, just keep 
these backgrounds in mind. And hopefully it'll give you a little bit more understanding and appreciation of why all four Gospels are different, why God took the effort to record all four and to keep them for us today. It's all the same story. It's all about Jesus. It's all good news about salvation in his name. And we can take any item from all of the four Gospels and apply them to ourselves, whatever we feel comfortable with, whatever we're impressed by. That's the aspect of Jesus that's pointed out by these individual writers. So it's all to God's glory. It's all for our benefit. And next week we'll talk about the Gospel of Matthew. But let's pray right now. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much. You certainly demonstrated tremendous wisdom in inspiring these different men to write these different books. And uh, there's so much to learn, so much to appreciate. And it's just so inspiring, Father, to see how you have worked intimately with these men through the Holy Spirit and how they all impact us differently and individually. So Father, help us to have an appreciation for your word and all the effort that you put into it. And Father, help us to be students of your word. Help us to have a desire on a regular basis to open our Bibles and to read, even though we've read before, to read again, because we never stop learning. And just when we think we know everything, you reveal something new to us. So Father, there's tremendous wisdom here, and we know that as we read, we learn more about you and also about ourselves. So Father, thank you for this wonderful gift of the Bible you've given us, and we thank you for the dedication of these men who gave their lives literally to write these words and to preserve them for us. So Father, thank you so much for your goodness, your mercy, your grace, and uh, thank you that we can know you as you truly are and be known by you. We love you, Father, and we thank you now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.